Uh, If you would open your Bibles to the second psalm. We are in a series in the psalms. It's a bit of a unique series in that normally when we do series in the psalms, I'll take several psalms and we'll walk through those psalms and, and, and exposit those particular psalms. And uh, that's, uh, you know, typically how I would recommend doing the Psalms. But for this three-week series, this being the third, uh, in a sense, I'm expositing the whole book as it sits before us, what, what we can learn from it as a, a, a collection of Psalms and an arrangement of Psalms. And um, so th- that's been our focus. Today, our focus uh, in that, now the, our series is Praying in a Broken World for the Kingdom Come. Praying in a Broken World for the kingdom come. Today we're going to focus in on uh, two themes that are tied together, I think, judgment and forgiveness. Judgment and forgiveness. We'll begin with the theme of judgment, and then we will explore forgiveness. So if uh, you would, let's read Psalm 2, and then we'll pray. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's, or Yahweh's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to Your Word in these Psalms, allow them to speak to us, to guide us, to direct us as a people, to shape us into the people whom You have called us to be. Through Christ Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen. America was founded on a dream, one in which all men were created equal, and that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we all partake in that great experiment, as it is often referred to. Now, to be sure, all men in that Declaration of Independence had its limitations. It was all men were created equal. Uh, but if one were not white or one were on the outs, uh, not on the outside of the womb, then that didn't really cover them. Nonetheless, it did paint a dream. And imagine how you might feel living in America now, but let's just change the circumstances such that we have all been taken captive and drawn away into somewhere in Russia, presumably Siberia, I would imagine. And the Kremlin has set up offices in D.C. to run this part of the operation. You wouldn't exactly think of that dream as being something on the cusp of being fulfilled, now would you? It would be more of a despair than a hope in that situation. Imagine like the Israelites, the time these psalms were gathered together, were in exile or 
returned from exile to a place that was at best a shell of its former glory, such a sense of hopelessness would have dominated the spirit of the people for whom the Psalter was arranged into its current form for prayer and worship. When studying the Psalms, there's a question, as with any scripture, um, as to when it was written, but there's maybe a second question we've often failed to ask, and that is, when, it, when was it arranged? So, each psalm was written at a particular point in time, but the whole book was arranged in its current form, as we know it, after the exile. And why did they arrange it that way? What was going on in their lives? How did they view things then that helped them to arrange it in such a way? Because I would argue that not only are the words of the Psalms inspired, but the way they're given to us is also inspired. The arrangement, that there are 150, that it's broken into five books, that there is, as we've been talking about for two weeks, a bit of a story that is being told throughout the 150 Psalms. If you just back up and listen quietly to what's going on behind the scenes. That story, as I've been saying, is about God's reign on the earth and the people's hope and prayers for such a reign. It's about God's reign on the earth and the people's hope and prayers for such a reign. Listen, the world we live in is broken, so we pray, your kingdom come. Our lives are broken, so we pray, your kingdom come. Our church is broken. So we pray, your kingdom come. You are broken. So we pray, your kingdom come. I am broken. So we pray, your kingdom come. My argument in this series is that the Psalms have been given to us and their prayers given for praying in a broken world for the kingdom come. Not just the future kingdom at the coming of Christ, which of course we do pray for and long for, but also presently among us as Christ comes into our lives by His rule more and more. Lord Jesus, Your kingdom come and manifest itself among us as a people as we walk out Your ways, Your love, Your forgiveness with each other. His kingdom comes like the sun with forgiveness and healing in its rays. Central to the kingdom coming in the Psalms are the themes of judgment and forgiveness. And so we're going to explore those two themes under two headings. Judgment of the nations, forgiveness of the nations. And I think to hold those together, we we have to understand both of them with each other in mind. First, under that heading, judgment of the nations. The nations. The ethnos. The the Gentiles. Could all be used words for that. If the Psalms are prayers for the kingdom come, then it makes sense that the nations, or other kingdoms, if you will, and peoples would be a prominent theme throughout because they stand in opposition to the kingdom. One Kingdom is coming, but that means other kingdoms are on the run. They're on the out, if you will. And so there's this conflict between kingdoms that is implied. And Psalm, Psalm 1 and 2, as we've talked about, serve as an introduction to the whole Psalter. 
Psalter just being a, a term that's used to apply to the whole collection of the Psalms. They serve as an introduction. Psalm 1 introduces the ideal, the world as it ought to work. Psalm 2 introduces the reason why it often doesn't. The nations and peoples conspire and rage against the Lord and His anointed King, His Christ. That's what His anointed is referring to, His Messiah, His Christ, the anointed King that God has promised will come into the world. The world conspires against it. The nations The very law in which the righteous delight in Psalm 1 is thought of as shackles by the people and nations in Psalm 2 that are in opposition to God. Psalm 2 begins with the attack of the nations against God and His King in the first three verses. They rage, they conspire against Him. Then we have God's response in verses 4 through 6. God laughs at their efforts and Then what does he do? He installs his king in Zion so that his reign might have effect. Thirdly, we see in that psalm that the response of of God's king, the king is installed, but then we have the king responding. He proclaims God's decree that he is God's son. And he gives God's invitation, or he, he, he declares God's invitation to him, the king, to ask for the nations and that they would be given to him. And then it ends with a warning and an invitation to the nations, which I find interesting. A warning to fearfully serve the Lord. An invitation to kiss the Son, lest, warning, lest, he be angry. But the invite is to take refuge in him and be blessed. Now this is going to be important when we get to that theme of forgiveness here in a bit. So just remember this offering of an alternative to his wrath that is given even in Psalm 2. But who are these nations of Psalm 2? On first read through the Psalms, one might assume that the nations are all those aligned against David and Israel, namely the Gentiles. That's what ethnos, nations, is also translated as as Gentiles. So surely it's everybody but the Israelites. However, in Psalm 3, the very first Psalm after this introduction, the enemy happens to be Absalom. David's son. You can't get any more inside than that. Enemies apparently exist within Israel. The image painted in the Psalms of the enemy is more like that which Alexander Solzhenitsyn described of evil and enemies. He said, quote, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That would be necessary now, wouldn't it? At times, the psalmist rages against his enemies. Other times, he allows that he himself may be at fault. To be clear, the the psalms lean heavily toward the enemy being the nations against Israel, yet the kings and nations opposed to God's king are invited to kiss him and serve him so that they might be blessed. So even those peoples and those kings can become one of those who are God's people. It's a fluid line. 
if you will. It's, it's what, you know, uh, uh, Bear talked about uh, walls earlier with gates to separate off, but you may have heard me use this phrase. We want to have uh, porous borders. <laughs> we want to have porous borders. We need to have a border, right? We need to define who we are, who we are not. We need to recognize who is the people of God and who are not. But the reality is that there are always those on the outside that God is drawing in, that they are part of us before we even know them. Because He has said so and He has made it so. And sadly, it is also always true that there are those on the inside that need to make their way out because they are not part, though they appear to be so. It's that tension that we live in. So we must have porous borders. By the time we get to the 89th Psalm, which is the last Psalm in the third book of Psalms, the nations have destroyed the Davidic dynasty. It seems as if God has forgotten His covenant with David. The people are in exile, but Psalm 150, the whole world is under God's rule and everything that has breath is praising Him. So the trajectory of the Psalms is one that starts well high in Psalm 1, but it seems to go downhill rapidly and to its lowest point in Psalm 89. God's kingdom is suffering assault constantly, but by the end of the book, it's got its own eschatology, its own end time, if you will, where everything that has breath is praising the Lord. It follows the same trajectory as the whole story of Scripture, which is fascinating. But interestingly enough, by the time we get to the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, where this psalm, too, that we started with, is quoted, the nations that rage against the Lord and His King are shockingly defined to include Israel. Sovereign Lord, we read in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse number 24. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? Note the quotation now from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Indeed. Listen. Herod. Wait a minute. Who is Herod? Jewish ruler. And Pontius Pilate. Roman ruler. Jew and Gentile met together with the ethnos, the the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the ultimate fulfillment of the first three verses of Psalm 2 where the nations, the enemies of God are conspiring against him is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus by Jew and Gentile together. You begin to see how there is no line we can draw out there somewhere that separates us from the enemy, but it runs right through our heart. If, as Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 21, the kingdom of God is in your midst... So are the nations of the world that are aligned against Christ in our midst. You see, there's two kingdoms in our midst. The kingdom of God and the other that assails it. In the Psalms, there are times when the line between good and evil seems clear and visible. And it stands between us and them. But then there are times when it does not allow us to think that that is the whole story. 
It's important to recognize that as we work through the Psalms. And that leads us to, well, let's just say the most difficult Psalms to deal with. The, they're called, this is, get this word, imprecatory Psalms. To imprecate is to call down evil upon someone. And there are those Psalms, and actually more of them than we'd like to own sometimes, that call down evil on our enemies. And we kind of embarrassingly avoid them often in our church services. You may notice that I have not had us do a call and response with them. (laughs) I, I am actually working on that, to be sure. Because I think we need to understand them, and we'll talk about that now. These are those psalms when the prayer asks God to smite his enemies and that his might be God's enemies or the prayer's enemies. Or both, and it's usually conceived of as both. They're handled in different ways by various theologians. The 109th psalm is considered the worst of them. So I'm going to read a portion of the 109th just to give you a taste in case you're not familiar with them. Quote, starting in verse 6, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser, let let the Satan, the accuser, stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Referenced in the book of Acts? as the reason for selecting of an apostle to replace Judas. Keep that in mind. It's going to be important in a moment. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. Hello. May his descendants be uh, uh, cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. And yes, that's in your Bible. C.S. Lewis kind of instinctively, I would say, wrote, quote, In some of the Psalms, the spirit of hatred which strikes us in the face is like the heat from a furnace mouth. We must not either try to explain them away or to yield for one moment to the idea that because it comes in the Bible, all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good and pious. We should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it or, worse still, used it to justify similar passions in ourselves. Only after these two admissions have been made can we safely proceed. Gordon Winham notes that they are usually treated as a kind of second-class spirituality. But I'm going to ask, are they second-class? Are they? That they are in our Bibles, we cannot deny. Therefore, they are good for the use of edifying. But how? (laughs) How does that edify? When does that edify? So there are a variety of approaches to these kinds of psalms. And by the way, I'm I'm sure that that clock is entirely wrong. Don't worry. I must have more time than what it tells me I have. (laughs) I surely must. Um, 
One way is to accept them as is and pray them regarding our enemies. And there have been people that have done that. Just accept them and pray them regarding our enemies. Secondly, some relegate them entirely to the dispensation of the Old Testament. Like, that just belongs to the Old Testament. We don't do that anymore. But it, it does make Christ's use of and the apostles' use of those psalms a bit puzzling because they didn't seem to think it had something to do entirely with a different dispensation. Most acknowledge that their language is hyperbole, giving insight into the desperation that produced them, which certainly it, that, that is true, but it, but it doesn't solve the problem entirely, because even if I accept them as hyperbole, there's still difficulties that remain with what do we do with them. We can't ins- assign them entirely to the Old Testament dispensation, because, in fact, when you get to the New Testament, you have some similar expressions. What are we going to do with those? Additionally, the calling down of evil is often sitting right next to verses that we would embrace as being really super spiritual. So what are we going to just start cutting, slicing, dicing? I'll take this, not that. Take this, not that. It's a little more complicated than we at first might think. Others observe that these psalms are just prayers. Not that there's anything just about a prayer, to be sure, but their point is that the psalmists are not asserting the right to take revenge themselves, as many people do, and as others justify themselves doing by these psalms. No, they're prayers about our enemies, which I think gets to a a key point for understanding them. It doesn't solve every problem, but it certainly gets to a key point for understanding them. These prayers are a way of entrusting vengeance to the Lord as Christ himself did. We, we learn in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, that he himself, or he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So, or as we learn in other verses, vengeance belongs to the Lord. The vengeance belongs to me, saith the Lord, but it belongs to him, not us. And is not bringing these things to God in prayer about our enemy and asking God to destroy them a way of entrusting vengeance to Him and not taking it ourselves? How many people would do better to go to prayer and ask God to take care of their enemies than what they actually do? Wouldn't it be much better if the people of God yelled at God about their enemies instead of at their enemies about their enemies? And aren't our prayers for the second coming, a time in which Christ will judge wickedness, similar to these, even if they don't have the more offensive language? I mean, if we believe that God's going to separate and put some in hell and some in heaven, when we say, Lord Jesus, come again in the face of injustice, aren't we saying the same thing? I would would say this. In a world of violence, we need these prayers. Christians in Ukraine need these prayers. Babies in the womb need these prayers, and they need us to utter them on their behalf. Children and women in human trafficking need these prayers to entrust vengeance to the Lord. Have you never, just, I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud. Please don't, in fact. It would really not be becoming of us. But just ask yourself. 
in a world of violence that we live in, have you never hated to the point of desiring violence? I'm not saying doing it, <laughs> but desiring it. I would argue that some of us did on the way to church this morning when somebody did something in traffic in front of us. And the, at least, I don't know, maybe a third of the women did so when their husband did something in traffic <laughs> if he was driving. So, you know. So if, if we have that kind of hatred rise up in us, where do we bring it? And if not to God, then where? And is that not the best place to bring it? But also, I think it's important to recognize that if we're going to understand these psalms, we have to understand judgment in the Old Testament. I'm going to call C.S. Lewis back to the witness stand to frame that discussion. Quote, The ancient Jews, like ourselves, think of God's judgment in terms of an earthly court of justice. The difference is that the Christian pictures the case to be tried as a criminal case with himself in the dock. In other words, this case is against me. It's a criminal case. I'm trying to to get off somehow. The Jews picture it as a civil case with himself as the plaintiff. In other words, I've got an argument against this person, and justice needs to come. The one hopes for pardon. The other hopes for a resounding triumph with heavy damages. So I think we have to answer the question, who cries out for judgment? I don't know about you, when I read, it, when I read in the Old Testament, oftentimes of, you know, O oh God of vengeance, shine forth, O oh, oh, oh God of judgment, come. You know, I'm not thinking to myself, yeah, that's great, that's what I want. But there were people that prayed that way and did want it. So we have to ask, why? Who cries out for such judgment? Well, people who live in positions of power rarely cry out for justice or judgment, for they feel they need none. Or worse, it might harm them. They want stability. The oppressed, the enslaved, the abused, those whose lives and rights have been trampled, they, they long for a day of judgment when justice shall be served. Stability isn't their first interest, you might say. Maintaining a system that keeps them oppressed would not be high on their radar screen, so to speak. Of course, that sets everybody up for wrong ways of dealing with this, but I'm just talking about what's naturally inclined to be in the cases of human beings and our circumstances. The Old Testament view of judgment and justice is more in line with the latter. The oppressed, longing for a day of judgment and justice when it will be served. The New Testament brings in the former without eliminating the latter because in the New Testament it's come to grips with the reality that Solzhenitsyn described, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So we recognize that we need justice, we need God to step in and and render harmless the oppressor, and then we realize, but I am He. We need forgiveness. Amen? We need forgiveness. Another theologian says, Since the Middle Ages, people have seen final judgment almost entirely as passing before God one by one to be judged for their own sins. They have lost sight of the idea that the last judgment is the time when all the injustice and suffering of the world will be ended, which is why the early church prayed so fervently for the second coming. 
Psalm 94 paints a clear picture of God's just judgment. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. If you're a believer in Ukraine, that prayer makes sense. Or in Nigeria, where there have been 18 attacks on churches in 2020, 31 last year, and 23 so far this year. Nearly one a week. People are murdered as they gather to worship. And it seems that things will only get worse there for now. O God of judgment, O judge of the earth, rise up, we pray. When we consider that judgment against all that harms others, then we must immediately consider the subject of forgiveness. And that leads us to the second, much shorter point. Um, I'll make it. We'll get it. We'll get it there. Forgiveness of the nations. As surely as forgiveness is a key theme in the gospel, it's a key theme in the story of the Psalms as well. Runs throughout. It's implied, as I noted earlier in uh, chapter 2, Psalm 2, uh, 8 through 12, where the Father speaking to the Son says, Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. Now this is wrath and judgment. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. But then notice the offer. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. The point is so that you can avoid that wrath. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss the Son or He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. See, an offer is on the table. Instead of wrath, one might experience grace. The 32nd Psalm. We read, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. And then the psalmist goes on to describe the anguish of guilt, something we're all familiar with. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then the freedom of confession. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. Who among us needs this hope of forgiveness? Here in the psalm, it's the faithful that need this hope of forgiveness. So obviously, being faithful is not the same as being sinless. When we pray to the Lord in our guilt, we are promised forgiveness. And then there's the most well-known psalm of repentance uh, in Psalm 51. The heading reads the psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. So we're learning the same thing here as the kids are learning today across the way, as Stephen pointed out earlier. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You alone, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. By the way, just for the record, that does not mean that when you sin against people that it is not also against them. It is David recognizing that at the depth, this is a a poetic language, that at that at its very core, whatever he did to harm Uriah, which was sin against Uriah, whatever he did to Bathsheba, which was sin against her, that ultimately what matters is that he violated his covenant with God and sinned against the Lord. That's what every sin at its core gets to. It's not excusing it as if he has nothing to repent for to other people in that situation. Anyway. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me, verse 7 says, with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I'll let you finish reading the rest of that on your own, but it's a model prayer of repentance. But notice this, and I I had not noticed this in 40-some years of studying the Bible until Gordon Winham pointed it out recently in a, a resource I was reading from him. There's no mention or promise to the penitent David in this psalm of having received forgiveness, or that he would. He's pleading for it throughout. He's even making commitments, what he will do if. But there's no affirmation that he's received it. It isn't until Psalm 65, 14 psalms later, that such a promise comes. And in between, the psalms focus on the experience of David or anyone praying through the psalms as one of trouble and distress. I mean, he can probably relate to what the 32nd psalm says, that when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, my groaning for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. That's what those psalms seem like, is God's hand in so many ways is heavy upon David. And he's longing for that experience of the joy of his salvation being restored to him as he cries out for in 51.12. Alas, Psalm 65 brings that promise of forgiveness. Praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. And what prayer in particular is he maybe referencing? Well, let's see. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. And the next psalm Psalm 66 begins, shout for joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. What a turnaround in the tone of the Psalms. God has restored to him the joy of his salvation through the forgiveness of sins. These are things that were not given to us for David's sake. They were given for our sake, for your sake. We who need forgiveness. We who need the joy of our salvation restored. His promise is sure, even if it seems to be waiting until you experience that forgiveness. And then finally, 
I'll just take a few minutes to, to cover this. There's a nation that is in need of forgiveness, and we, we see that in Psalm 103. Remember, at the beginning of the Psalms, the nations rise up against the Lord. The nations, at the tale, Psalm 103 through 106, which end the second book, or, or the fourth book, rather, of the Psalms. So, uh, they are, appear to be intentionally grouped together. I mean, even as a, a kid reading them, I would recognize that this group of Psalms, and even into the first one of the next book, seem like they go together. They seem like they're similar, and, and they do. Um, they begin and end, Psalm 103 and 104, with the expression, Bless the Lord, O my soul, which was supposed to be in our call and response this morning. We had, we had that. The, but they tell a story. These four Psalms together tell a story, and it's a story of sin and forgiveness. Psalm 103, it begins with God's certain and unfailing promise of forgiveness. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who sat to have our life redeemed from the pit. doesn't get better. And it's been suggested, and I would agree with him, that all the benefits flow out of the first one, who forgives all your sins. The psalm continues by referencing a time in Exodus 33 and 34 when Israel deserved to be annihilated by God's wrath, but instead he showed them mercy. And so we, the psalmist quotes from that and continues, but the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the quote. But now he paraphrases and explains, He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How many times have we thought on those words and they've been nourishment to our soul? Amen? We reviewed that whole Exodus background back in the sixth part of the Jonah series, so I won't go there today. But it's a promise. He will not always accuse, nor will he arbor his anger forever. What, what sins have you committed about which the accuser is constantly telling you God cannot forgive you? What are those sins? Draw them to mind. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. That's a promise. He does not treat you as your sins deserve or repay you according to your iniquities. Thanks be to God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. Now that psalm stands at the beginning of those four psalms telling a story. Psalm 104 recounts God's goodness in creation. Similar to Genesis 1. Psalm 105 recounts God's faithfulness in preserving Israel through its history, delivering them out of Egypt. Sparing them from famine, delivering them, and, and his commitment, because of his commitment and covenant with Abraham. And then the 106th Psalm, the last of these, it recounts the unfaithfulness of Israel. And it ends with the story of their exile to the nations. Psalm 106 begs the question, is there any forgiveness left for us now? 
Is there any forgiveness left for us? Now remember, in Jeremiah, we are told that God says to Israel at the point of their exile, I divorce you, Israel. No wonder they would ask, is there any forgiveness left for us now? It turns out that the nation that needs God's forgiveness most is Israel. Will God remember His covenant? But you have to remember that Psalm 106 is only given us in the shadow of the 103rd Psalm, which introduces that story of God's sure promise of forgiveness and that He will not always be angry. He will not always hold against us our sins, thanks be to God. Forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins. Therefore, despite the total unfaithfulness of Israel, Psalm 106 ends this way, Yet He took note of their distress when He heard their cry. For, the sake, for, for their sake He remembered His covenant, and out of His great love He relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy. Hosanna! Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. To be sure, forgiveness is for those who fear him. But clearly, those who fear him also had sin in their lives and needed forgiveness. The wicked give no heed to God. We are a people who need forgiveness. Aren't you glad that we have the promises of forgiveness which are told us in the story of the Psalms? They're ours. Let's go through that story. Let's pray that story. Let's contemplate that story. And let us embrace His benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with loving kindness. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, This truth of your forgiving love, that your mercy endures forever, is the greatest truth that we can know about you. And we rejoice in it. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.